the line was, oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave? And it was a question mark. It wasn't a declaration. It was like, is it still there? Right. Because when he wrote that poem that turned into the national anthem, he knew that countries could die. Uh, there was a nation of Genoa that lasted about 211 days uh, in 1814. The Republic of Belgium uh, lasted just a year in 1790. So nations can fall apart. You know, we, we tend to think that the nations that fall apart are poor. We talk about Sudan and Haiti. Right. But wealthy nations fall apart. You know, mm -hmm. the Austro-Hungarian Empire was powerful. The Ottoman Empire was the most powerful nation uh, in the Middle East uh, and North Africa right. and parts of Asia. And they're gone. You know, I've never met an Ottoman. You know, I put my feet on an Ottoman in my living room, but I've never met an Ottoman. They're gone. Right. And they weren't gone. Uh, because there was a recession or even a pandemic, they were gone because they were destroyed from within and they didn't know they no longer cohere. This is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. Very pleased to be joined today by Todd Buckholtz. Todd's a brilliant economist. He was the director of economic policy at the White House for President Bush 41, uh, former managing director at the Tiger Hedge Fund, a best-selling author. Books include New Ideas from Dead Economists and The Price of Prosperity, How Rich Nations Fail, and How to Renew Them. Todd, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for being with me. Good to be with you. I'm glad your flag has survived whatever battles it's been through. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, you know, we, we, we wanted to keep it uh, sort of realistic for where our country is right now. Okay. It's been through a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Find Betsy Ross and uh, tell her she's needed again. <laughs> Uh, so I wanted to get your um, your takes, your sort of overall view, looking at sort of the most important economic trends in the global economy in the U.S. Are there any data points, any economic trends that give you like substantial concern? We're in obviously very unique time still coming out of this pandemic. Um, you know, forty percent money expansion by the Fed, uh, inflation highest has been in decades. What are you sort of looking at in terms of making making sense of the whole economic landscape in the U.S. and, and globally? Well, we can look at things from the short term and the long term. Mm -hmm. I've got some long term yeah. concerns, mm -hmm. uh, the indebtedness of the country. I mean, in fact, our ratio of debt to GDP is greater than it was after World War II. And we have absolutely no concern whatsoever about paying it back someday. Uh, and so given demographics and given Medicare and Social Security and the fact that those are not going to be solvent, there's a big problem ahead for, you know, at least younger people or, you know, the unborn, uh, because someday debt will have to be paid back. Um, in the short term, we've got 
inflation, the likes of which we haven't seen since the 1970s. Just in the last week, Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve Board, whom I worked with at the Treasury Department, kind of threw in the towel on the word transitory, said uh, we're not allowed to use that word anymore. Uh, and, um, you know, Joe Biden says that uh, supply chain issues are just too complicated. Uh, and if you speak to American family at their dinner table or restaurant table, um, you know, they'll just be confused and start dribbling or drooling their food. Uh, so leadership has been uh, lacking. Um, what's been positive is the American people and American business have shown extraordinary resiliency uh, in recovering from COVID from an economic point of view. The bounce back, and it actually began in 2020, in the summer of 2020, uh, was far stronger and far more V-shaped, if you will, than most economists were expecting. Um, in roughly three months during late 2020, we recovered about one third of the jobs that had been lost. Uh, after the Great Recession, 2007, 2008, and 2009, it took about three years to have that kind of recovery. Uh, so, you know, there are things to be impressed by, and, and we haven't even gotten into the issue of how pharmaceutical companies pretty much saved humanity over the course of the last year. So there's good stuff, uh, and there's bad stuff, and there's miserable leadership in Washington. So that's how I summarize things. What do you make of the, so obviously the Federal Reserve has a huge impact on on the economy and economic policy. Um, do you think this sort of uh, expansionary policies, do you think that sort of ever gets tapered back? Do you think that, do you, or do you think it's, even if it does get tapered back, it's kind of like a new normal and maybe they can't really raise interest rates much, you know, ever again, or how do you sort of make sense of that? It's, it's a good question. Look, there have been people who've been criticizing the Federal Reserve Board, obviously since its founding in 1913, but more recently, since the Great Recession of 2008-2009, um, there are many people who thought that at the time, Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Fed, uh, was crazy, that he was going to ignite with loose monetary policy, with roughly 0% interest rates, with quantitative easing, meaning buying government bonds up, that that was going to let loose not the dogs of war, but the dogs of hyperinflation. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, and it didn't happen when Janet Yellen took the reins and more or less kept the same policy. And it didn't happen in the first years of Jay Powell. Um, those same critics of the Fed who thought the Fed was recklessly loose said that the U.S. dollar was going to fritter away to nothing. Well, the dollar is actually strong, not weak. I have to say that I was a dove on inflation for about a dozen years. I defended the Federal Reserve Board and Bernanke in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, all the way up to 20. And uh, to be honest, most of the time I was arguing with my Republican friends. I remember having a raging argument with uh, former House Majority Leader Dick Armey, uh, who's a trained economist, and he thought that in 2010 and 11, where inflation was going to get out of hand. But th 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 those critics were flat wrong until, until 2020. And for the last year, the Fed has been, I think, reckless in uh, anticipating solely transitory inflation. Um, and I'll, I'll, and not even warning us until a couple weeks ago that the risks of in higher inflation had gone up substantially. I mean, they really dismissed the whole idea and said it was just something, pa something passing. Um, Paul Krugman wrote a piece in the New York Times in June of this year saying inflation is dead again. 
you know, the inflation scare has passed, it's over. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, he had to recant and admit he was wrong. And the reason I was um, disappointed in, in, in how the Fed handled things was not just the actual policy, but the communications of that policy. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say you tune into your weatherman uh, and your local weatherman, and of course in Los Angeles, it never rains, but let's say you're someplace else other than Los Angeles, your local weatherman knows there's a 5% chance of rain and he tells you leave the umbrella at home. And well, that's a very sensible thing to do. Well, what if your weatherman says or knows there's a 45% chance of rain? It's probably not going to rain, but it's kind of 50-50, almost 50-50. If he tells you to leave your umbrella at home because it's probably not going to rain, you're probably going to think he's not a very good, responsible weatherman. Well, the Federal Reserve Board knew that the chances of inflation had risen from 5% to maybe 45%, my book it had risen to 75%, but they thought it was more or less in the 40s. And still they told people, oh, don't worry, no inflation, nothing to see, we're going back uh, to flat pricing again. So um, I, think the, I think the Fed is messed up. I think the president uh, has been wrong to encourage the Fed to keep buying bonds, to resist the tapering. And, and let's be honest, President Trump was also um, highly critical of the Fed, but from the other side, he was telling the Fed they should do even more. So he thought Jay Powell was trying to do in the economy right. by being unduly hawkish. So I think, you know, both President Biden and uh, President Trump um, were really, you know, misreading what was taking place, and, and so did the Federal Reserve Board. So you touched on this uh, sort of idea that inflation has sort of become a problem now you know, it's like 6% with the, the new CPI. What do you make of some people who would say, actually, in, inflation has been here for many years. It's just sort of been disguised. For instance, like, you know, the, um, you know, housing has gone up something like 15, 20% a year for many years. Um, you know, education costs, healthcare costs, et cetera. Technology has been deflationary, but some of these really essential things have been very inflationary. And then like, I've seen charts too, where like, if you use the, M2 as uh, money supply, sort of the denominator, you see that the stock market has been flat for like 20 years, something like that. So people basically saying, oh, well, they, they've kind of, you know, obscured inflation. We've had, we've had inflation for a while. It's just been sort of, um, you know, manipulated in, in, in the stats. And, and now, even though it says 6%, it's really something like 12%. What do you make of that argument? Clearly there's inflation now. And I think 6% may understate it, but forget about experts or so-called experts like myself, forget about the statistics and, and you can get very granular with them. Mm -hmm. If you just ask the person on the street uh, how they're behaving, they're behaving now as if there is significant inflation. Right. People are buying ahead of time because they now believe prices will be higher next year. That wasn't the case five years ago. Now, I know there are people who are always suspicious of the government, you know, whether they're on the left and on the right, the government's cooking the books. But I have to tell you, my experience in Washington is that the people at the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the bureaucrats of the Department of Commerce do try to go down the middle and, and they don't try to manipulate it to hide some inflation, but it's here. It's now, and it's undeniable. And it's, it's very clear that it's a different situation. Um, if you look at just two years ago, there were, there were price wars going on throughout the economy. You might recall in the financial services sector, Schwab announced 
uh, no commissions on trade, and then Fidelity matched it, and then Vanguard uh, cut their management fees on mutual funds. Amazon took over Whole Foods. Remember, we used to make a joke about Whole Foods. People used to call it Whole Paycheck. Mm -hmm. It took your entire paycheck up if you shopped at Whole Foods. Well, when Amazon came in, and you might have positive or negative opinions about the, the company, they really did cut quite a number of prices at Whole Foods. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we saw in Cal the state of California, whether it's Vons or Ralph's or Safeway, or if you're in the South, Piggly Wiggly, wherever you live, uh, it was very difficult for supermarkets to raise prices. So um, if you are particularly skeptical about the government, you think the government's hiding inflation, you might want to take a look at something that uh, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology compiles, which is called the Billion Dollar Index, where they survey in real time about a billion prices around the economy. Uh, and, you know, they don't do it to manipulate. And basically, their numbers are not that different from the government numbers. We've got an inflation problem now. We didn't have an inflation problem three years ago. What do you make of the, just, just a quick point on that. So what do you make of the whole you know, after 1979, they changed the CPI from the cost of goods, right? And substitute certain products, they stopped including like a um, house in the CPI metric, right? Having a home. Um, why do you think that was? Maybe a way to sort of uh, paint a rosier picture of things? No, I mean, it, arguably, uh, government numbers were overstating uh, inflation because they tended not, they didn't take into account the improvement of goods, nor did they take into account the ability for people to substitute. So for instance, if you went to the supermarket uh, in 1978 and the price of iceberg lettuce was up by whatever you wanna say, 20%, people would look around the shelf and say, whoa, I'll buy romaine lettuce instead, uh, or Boston lettuce or you know, radicchio or something else. And you know, maybe I can save some money there. Well, the statistics back then did not allow that flexibility. And as a result of the internet, we all, I mean, aren't you comparison price shopping uh, whenever you go online? I mean, I certainly am. And that was not something you were capable of doing 20 years ago. It, I mean, it just didn't exist. So the internet itself, the presence of the internet has helped contain inflation. Um, so, you know, I, again, I think we really need to be focusing on the problem now, uh, mm -hmm. not claiming that there was a whole lot of inflation uh, that showed up, you know, previously. Do you think that there's been substantial asset inflation over the over, let's say, the last couple of decades, right? So, for example, you're in San Diego, you know, I, I don't know how much of the, the home prices were in, say, the year 2000, but I'm sure it was close to what it was in L.A., uh, in terms of the just rapid incre increase in prices. Now, some of that is obviously you know, being California, you have things like Sequa, which make it more expensive, but you know, other cities, Miami and Austin and, and all sorts of cities. Uh, and then obviously with a, you have a significant sort of um, deviation in terms of what you get in the stock market relative to, to what you used to get, you know, like the NASDAQ went up something like 25% a year for the last 20 years. Do you th see that the expansionist money printing has led to asset inflation? Is that your view at all? I do. I do think more recently uh, yeah. it uh -huh. has. And, and I think there's been a, you know, there, there has been a downside to all the sti monetary stimulus that took place. Uh, and one of the downsides is people end up taking more risk than they otherwise would take. They have more money in equities and they don't have money in bank CDs because who wants a return right. of 0 0.01 on a bank CD? You know, I recall when I was a little kid, I remember being in the car in the backseat of our Oldsmobile and my mom had 
our family savings in a bank certificate of deposit. And in that era, she got about 6% on that bank CD. Mm -hmm. But not only that, she also got a blender when she opened up the account. Uh, and so I remember at the end of six months, I was in the back seat of the car. My mom withdraws the money because the six month CD had matured. We're driving across town to some other bank. And I say, mom, I don't understand. Why did you take the money from this bank? Why are we racing to get to the other bank? She looks, she's driving. She looks back and over her shoulder and says, Todd, I need a toaster. Um, so back then you got 6% on your money and you yeah. got an appliance. Right. Now it's no appliance, no lollipop, no return. As a result of that, the stock market is much stronger than it otherwise would be because people aren't getting a return in alternative investments. It may be one reason why crypto became uh, such a uh, phenomenon as people were looking for some other means of getting rich that didn't uh, entirely reflect the stock market. So I think there is some asset inflation. I think housing prices in California uh, are ridiculous and they're ridiculous partly because of regulation. Mm -hmm. uh, the state of California and cities and towns make it excruciatingly difficult uh, to build. If you want to forget about uh, new builds. If you just want to change your building in Santa Monica, California, you have to account for recycling every doorknob and every hinge. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why when you drive through parts of Los Angeles, um, they look, you know, a lot may cost $2 million, but it looks depressed. And on that lot is a vape shop, you know, someone who rebuy gold uh, and a cannabis stand. And then, you know, maybe if you're lucky, if they're really upscale, someone will change your muffler. Um, other parts of the country with less regulation, valuable lots three blocks from the ocean would not be used for cannabis and car mufflers. So that's, you know, regulation playing a role in taking land um, off the market. Uh, and making it very difficult for affordable housing or, you know, even unaffordable housing for wealthy people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there's, it, it is a, um, I remember my parents came here in the seventies and I saw even Arnold Schwarzenegger had a uh, sort of quote about it, about he is renting like a, an apartment from a postman living like three blocks away from the beach in, in Santa Monica. And I think the guy was paying like 400 bucks a month. And that's kind of, you know, the similar experience that they had. Uh, and now obviously, you know, to get the same, uh, equivalent place in today's money, you're looking 4,500, right? And meanwhile, wages have gone up maybe double since then, right? But right. housing has gone up 10x. That's why people leave the state of California, yeah. why they're so attracted to Florida and Texas and Utah and places where there's less regulation, where taxes are lower, and where housing is far more affordable, from, especially for middle-class people. Why do you think that there's been a... Um, Certain industries like, like healthcare, or education, or or housing. When you look at sort of the, the graphs, they used to track along with wages, and then like these three things, pretty much in particular, just shot up. They completely um, diverged from you know the the sort of flatlining of wages, basically starting in the sort of the seventies and eighties. Um, there might be one other thing that I'm missing, but those three things in particular just shot up like a rocket ship, significantly outpaced wages around that time. Do you, do you have any- You're saying housing, 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 healthcare. education, and healthcare, yeah. Well, well, first of all, there's a difference between the sticker price, especially for education uh, and healthcare, and the actual price that's paid. Uh, when you look at tuition bills, and I've got two kids in college, and I, you know, I had a frightening 
um, you know, I, I, am I being compensated for this call? Because I really need it to pay my tuition. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's shocking if you're playing, paying the sticker price. But yeah. most students in colleges, private colleges, are not paying uh, the sticker price. And some of the universities have such bulging endowments that if families earn less than $150,000, they may not be paying uh, tuition. Um, so it's, you know, this, again, it's, it's hard to judge what the real payments are that students are making for education. Uh, when it comes to healthcare, um, if I pick up a prescription at my local pharmacy, uh, and I'm covered by insurance, my out-of-pocket might be $10 or $20 or $50. But if I don't have insurance, it could be $450 for the same 12, 20, 30 pills. So it's a little bit difficult you know, to, to gauge what is the price of prescription drugs. Uh, you have to look down and see, okay, well, who's paying for it? Whose pocket is it coming from? Um, the you know the government tends to drive up prices when it gets involved. Uh, it's a very easy bumper sticker to um, to run for office, run for Congress, and say either we're going to make education free or we're going to increase uh, student aid and student tuition. Uh, so the government does that, and then the universities just raise their tuition because they figured the kids have more money because the government has just given them money. Um, so um, when you look at products and services where the government is not playing a big role, uh, you see prices well generally under control. I'll give you an example. Um, you, you can drive around actually most parts of the country. It used to be a Southern California thing, but now you know doctors offering Botox and facelifts and all those sorts of things used to be very expensive. Now, pretty much, you know, any fitness center in the country will offer you Botox at, I don't know what they charge, you know, if it used to be, uh, if it used to be $800 uh, of, not a vial, a vial or a, or a syringe, you know, maybe it's $80 now. Uh, same thing with um, eye surgery, LASIK eye surgery, used to be for the rich. Tiger Woods was one of the, was an early adopter. God knows how many tens of thousands of dollars Tiger Woods paid to have LASIK eye surgery done in when, I don't know, the 1990s. Uh, and now billboards will advertise it. You do it, you know, almost like a drive through at McDonald's. Now, those prices have come down because there's raging competition. And because it's deemed elective surgery or elective procedures, the government is not playing a big role. So when you get the government out, you tend to have more competition. You tend to defeat inflation. When the government is in, and the examples you gave are areas where the government is in deep, you end up ultimately punishing consumers. Absolutely. They, they definitely have... Uh been responsible for a lot of these increases for sure. Gosh, it makes me want to go out and get LASIK and Botox today. <laughs> now that I've told myself how cheap it is. Yeah. And pl plastic surgery in general has actually also been uh, pretty constant in its pricing. It hasn't had the same sort of inflation you get. So yeah, it's a uh, all, all sorts of plastic surgery. Now, 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 by the way, you know, this is the moment you're supposed to jump in and say, Hey Todd, you don't need any of that. I know <laughs> well, the zoom filter on. Right? Thank yeah. you. <laughs> All you need is a Zoom filter. Oh, okay. Yeah, that'll do it. I just need to walk around with a Zoom filter. Um, speak a little bit about China. China right now is, is going through a pretty interesting period in terms of, well, first of all, you have all the sort of calamitous consequences that stem from, you know, maybe, you know, likely the Wuhan lab 
uh, Virology Institute. And then, you know, they made doctors disappear early and could have had a much more decisive manner in terms of containing this virus uh, if they acted more quickly. Yeah, it would have been nice had they right. not jailed doctors. They not, they not like lied to the rest of the world and, yeah. uh, you know, did gain a function research and all that. But aside from that, so then you also have the, the new news is kind of G stepping away, basically backtracking from their more capitalist uh, front that they've they've been pursuing for, you know, I guess basically since the uh, Deng Xiaoping administration. You know, the, the, the most recent example was like shutting down the entire private tutoring sector, right? They, uh, I guess, are delisting Didi, which is like the Chinese Uber from our stock exchanges. Seem to be more... They obviously what happened with Jack Ma and Alibaba creating a hostage video because he criticized the government. So they put him in this place. What do you make with America's relationship with China? We should also mention the Evergrande thing, their biggest real estate uh, construction firm falling on hard times yet to be seen what the ramifications of that are. What do you make with in terms of like what America and China's relationship, particularly economically, how do you see that changing over the years? Do you think China... Uh, is going to run into some economic trouble? And if so, does that affect the United States? Well, I I do think that China runs into economic trouble. I think China is going to hit the great brick wall of China, which is its terrible demographics. Mm -hmm. That dastardly one-child policy that was in place until a few years ago led to female adoptions abroad, female infanticide, uh, and... Um, and now they're going to be paying the price because they don't have enough young workers to support retirees. China is aging you know, faster than any other country. Um, and there's a terrible mismatch now of young men and young women because mm-hmm. young men were prized over women by families that could only have one child. So now you've got, oh, you know, 50 million or so young guys who are frustrated, randy, you know, can't get a date. Yeah. Uh, that's not, not what you want in your society, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, meanwhile, they're amped up on Red Bull or Oolong tea. Uh, that's a lot of energy that's going to be released, and it could be in protests and so on. So, China's got a huge problem. It doesn't have a healthcare system that will support uh, old people. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, uh, it is trying to make sure it can capture. Um, economic assets, uh, including land. And if it can't capture them, uh, it wants to retake them or build them. And what, what do I mean by all of that? Uh, a couple of things. First of all, has been widely reported. China is building its own islands uh, in the South China Sea to the annoyance and now fear of its neighbors in Vietnam and elsewhere. Um, at the same time, China lends money to Africa and to Asia, and if countries don't pay back, they take the land, right? right. As they did with Sri Lanka, yeah. uh, they build ports, and it's um, you know it's recourse debt, and the recourse they just took is- over Uganda's airport, by the way, too. Pardon me? That they took over Uganda's airport, their only international airport. That's right. That's right. So um, you know, if they ever do a remake of an Entebbe uh, <laughs> strike, it'll be uh, Chinese flags waving instead of Ugandan. Um, so. Uh, you know, we, we see that the Biden administration has woken up uh, to China in some way, and we saw the deal to supply nuclear submarines uh, to Australia, which offended the French, but um, uh, China is looking for its own hegemony. 
uh, and it wanted to buy, it thought it could buy influence, but now, now the threats to Taiwan uh, are real. I think there's a, a significant chance that China um, tries to take over attempt to Taiwan and beyond that, even Okinawa, uh, which is Japanese. I've been to Okinawa, just as Vladimir Putin looks at Crimea and Ukraine and comes up with his excuse that, well, there are Russian nationals there who are being persecuted by the Ukrainian government. I need to protect them. So therefore I'm gonna goose step uh, my way through Crimea. The Chinese will do the same thing with Okinawa. They will say there are Chinese nationals. They may even be a majority of the citizens really? of Okinawa and the Japanese government's oppressing them. And Okinawa is more or less just as close to mainland China as it is to Tokyo. So we're taking it. So I think there's a real reason to be concerned about China and it's building up its military at a very fast pace. I think the US has fallen behind in research and hypersonic missiles. Um, and I say that not spouting off, you know, the top of my mind, but more or less you can quote U.S. Air Force officials saying the same thing. So the world map is looking scarier. Yeah, I didn't. I actually didn't know that about Okinawa that it had a uh, large Chinese population. That's, well, you'll be hearing about it when China takes over. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> That's I. So that is one of the things I fear is the. So obviously with Taiwan, they control what how much percent of the semiconductor industry if they get a hold of taiwan uh and semiconductors are basically one of the most valuable resources in tech today uh so that's one aspect obviously there's many other aspects that are just calamitous if they do that but i think it i think it's also uh, we've we've no we the american people have now noticed that china's exports are not just among electronics we all knew electronics and toys and clothing were largely made in china but until until covid struck how many of us knew how many antibiotics were right. actually imported from china or even ventilators which at the outset of covid we thought uh, were you know the life-saving machines that every hospital was going to need 10 times over um, so i think there's a renewed scrutiny about trade with China uh, and a renewed or a new definition of what strategic items are. Uh, and they're not limited solely to military uh, military grade items. Right, and also the rare earths, which is a huge component as well. Um, you know, it's crucial for all sorts of electronic products that we need, uh, basically for you know, a lot of our modern life, you know, relies on these rare earths. Uh, and they control a large part of that market as well. Yeah, the Taiwan thing really concerns me. Um, and I, I actually spoke to, uh, I, don't if, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but Dr. Pry, he's one of the experts on sort of EMPs and um, has a very thorough understanding of the uh, nuclear arsenal. The hypersonic missile thing is is unbelievable. It's like the same people who uh, you know, were, were caught off guard thinking that there was WMDs in, in Iraq didn't know that China was making these hypersonic missiles, which render much of our the billions and decades we spent on defensive missiles. Uh, basically, a lot of those defenses are, are useless now with hypersonic missiles because it could just evade all sorts of defenses that we have in place. I, I, I When I was um, a young man, um, I recall when Argentina took over the Falkland Islands from Britain uh, and Margaret Thatcher, you know, said this would not stand and she sent her Navy there and they took back the Falkland Islands. But there was a moment that was truly frightening when a British ship was sunk by a Chinese Exocet missile. 
This was a long time ago. This was before Deng Xiaoping. It was before China, you know, had built a new Shanghai and we knew that China could produce advanced electronics. The idea that in the early 80s, China could produce a missile that would sink a British naval ship that was uh, indefensible um, was a shock. So um, to think about China today developing missiles, it is entirely believable that they could have leapfrogged the US and Britain and every NATO power uh, when it comes to that sort of uh, mechanism. Yeah, no, it's pretty, it's pretty unbelievable, All the money we spend defense and they're able to get such a asymmetrical advantage. Um, well, and, and yeah. you know, the fact is if, if we were ahead of them on that research, they would have stolen that research anyway through spying and yeah. it would be over you know, in Beijing pretty quickly mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. One of the other problems with China is, is in this gets into the whole woke Wall Street stuff where you have, you know, I think BlackRock might be like a, a pretty good example of this, right? So BlackRock basically pressures all these corporations to uh, pursue certain ESG initiatives, you know, actually translate into certain like left-wing ideological goals. And then they score you based on those ESG initiatives. And then they have, you know, conveniently funds uh, where the companies that did well on the ESG initiatives, whether they be you know, uh, certain carbon emissions, or maybe could be even support for certain like left-wing groups or BLM or something of that nature, uh, get into there. And then they charge people money for that. I mean, it's a whole, <laughs> it's just, it's a really great business. And then meanwhile, those same kinds of people had nothing to say about China. I, I think you saw probably Ray Dalio as well, a couple of weeks ago, basically, yeah. you know, refer to China as some sort of strict parent. And well, look, I, what, What's shocking is that Folks who you would think would be beyond intimidating. Right. If you're worth X billion dollars and you still can't speak your mind, well, unless that unless he felt he was speaking his mind and he just equivocates and thinks there's no difference between a dictatorship and a democracy, that's possible. Yeah, someone like LeBron James. Mm -hmm. My gosh, I think if I were six foot eight, you know, and had LeBron James homes and his money, I might finally feel as if I could say what I think. Uh, but instead, he kowtows as if he's four foot six and make, make, making a minimum wage. Yeah, I know. Whatever happened to fuck you money, right? <laughs> it doesn't exist, apparently. Um, well, I guess it's now in yen or won. Yeah. So one of the interesting things that's happened is, and this is what I was getting to, is so there, there was kind of a push amongst some of the China hawks. One of the things was like to delist Chinese companies here looks like they're doing our work for for us basically right because they're they're they themselves have taken upon themselves to distance themselves from our markets which is a good thing uh, we couldn't even pressure our own companies necessarily to uh, you know achieve that goal um, but you you still have these these sort of corporations you know basically still trying to suck up to China uh, and then on top of that lecture the rest of the United States. And, and like we said with the BlackRock example, this is called the, the whole woke Wall Street, woke corporation phenomena, where they're pressuring other corporations because they have trillions of dollars of assets to play with, uh, to use as leverage, to adopt certain you know left-wing initiatives, essentially, whether that be supporting you know BLM causes or what, what have you. How, this woke capital phenomena, this, this woke Wall Street phenomena, new thing, like what, what do we do about it? What can be done? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I do think that um, it's gone far enough that there's a there, suspicion is building that there's a lot of greenwashing that goes on, mm -hmm. that companies that might be just as polluting as anybody else 
figured, well, if we, you know, if we put up a couple of windmills, they won't see what else we're doing. So I think that um, uh, ESG is starting to get more scrutiny. Um, but you know, if, to the extent that uh, Wall Street leaders decide that they want to win Nobel prizes on the basis not of return on investment, but you know, pleasing uh, the most activist college audiences. I'm not sure what, you know, I'm really not sure what we do about that. We have this ridiculous energy policy now where um, Wall Street and, and others and activist investors are pressuring major energy companies not to produce energy. Mm -hmm. And the Biden administration is pressuring uh, energy companies not to produce natural gas, even though it's clean. All right. Uh, we'll you know, do business with Saudi Arabia, though, right? <laughs> no, right. So instead, we crawl and, again, kowtow uh, across the world, begging OPEC to pump more, mm -hmm. begging Vladimir Putin to pump more. It's absolutely absurd. And then when you think, do you really, th if you care about the planet, if you accept that there will be some fossil fuels produced, wouldn't you want them produced in a country that is more responsible in how it pumps them right. out of the ground? And do you really think that Russia takes more care when it pumps natural gas than a company located in Ohio or Oklahoma? So the hypocrisy is staggering. Uh, and it's self-defeating for the economy. And I think ultimately it's going to be self-defeating for the White House when they run for re-election. You, have you ever seen a, a phenomenon like this? Because you obviously follow economic history uh, where corporations in our own country have, certainly by their, by their rhetoric, more allegiance to, to our chief adversary in the world than they do to us. At least they'll, they'll say more favorable things about a country, you know, engaging in ethnic genocide than they will their own home country and have like, no, you know, it's like we didn't, I feel like we didn't have this during, say, the Nazi era, right? Or, or even the Soviet era. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Clearly, there are always apologists, right? I mean, there are always right. those during the Cold War era who talk about moral equivalence. Well, both countries are just trying to take care of their people. We've got our ways, they've got theirs. Then you've got the people who've been telling us for years how Cuba has such wonderful health care mm -hmm. because basically they train many doctors, not that these young people have a choice. Uh, and then they force these doctors to practice in places they don't necessarily want to preserve. They basically turn young people into hostages and they give them white coats. Uh, and then, you know, progressives will tell us how great healthcare yeah. is in Cuba. And of course, when one of the Castros gets sick, he doesn't stay in Cuba. He flies to some other place in order to get treatment. So sure, there always have been apologists. But, you know, you go back to Vladimir Lenin himself, who said, quote, when we go to hang the capitalists, he will sell us the rope. <laughs> well, you know, that's kind of what's going on in order to maintain warm relations with our friends in Beijing, uh, these companies are doing in themselves. You know, a few years ago, uh, an unsuccessful CEO from, from, from General Electric named Jeffrey Immelt went to China uh, and Jeffrey dared to speak the truth. And what he said, he wasn't talking about um, ethnic genocide or anything that incendiary. He was just, he simply said, you know what? We can't make money here. 
they squeeze us, they take us, you know, the commissions we have to pay, we, we can't make, and then suddenly all the vice presidents of GE said, Shh, you can't say that, you can't say that. And then he had to backtrack. The fact is, it's really hard for American companies to turn a profit in China. Uh, they might in the first couple of years, but then they have to turn over intellectual property. Right. But somehow, you know, they, they, it's like Charlie Brown, they keep kicking that same football every Thanksgiving and falling on their buttocks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think ironically, the, the way this ends is, is China's going to, you know, do it for us, essentially, they're going to probably once they feel that they're in a position that they don't need American uh, technology anymore. Uh, you know, they're going to sort of kick our corporations out, and then we'll see where, what tune they'll sing then. But uh, that may that might be the only end game, right? Is <laughs> for China is it, especially uh, looking at what Xi is doing with with his economic reforms and you know trying to co control different industries and you know dis, uh, disappearing certain other people. So so here's another thing I want to ask you. So you, you had in your in your book the price of prosperity it goes over why rich nations fall apart due to the, the trends that you mentioned were debts, globalization. Well, it's a little bit like your background, doesn't it? There we are. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, a little bit like your your backdrop. Uh huh. Uh -huh. And so you you mentioned. Sorry, I, inter I interrupted you to do a plug for my. Yeah, yeah. Book. Go ahead. <laughs> so you you mentioned in uh, in the price of prosperity that rich nations will fall apart, and you you mentioned five different uh, sort of factors that are often responsible for this throughout history, like debt and globalization. You know, maybe lack of work ethic amongst the population, decreasing population decline in patriotism. The United States doesn't look terribly good on any of these metrics right now. Maybe the population one, we're actually pretty good relative to some other countries because other countries are not having as many kids. What, what, what sort of makes you hopeful about, about the future, particularly for the U.S.? If anything. <laughs> you know, there are still millions of parents who care about their kids and care about their country and care more about their country and their children than they do about woke causes. And you see that, you know, on the soccer fields every Saturday and Sunday. I mean, in, in my little seaside hamlet, there was a tree lighting ceremony last Sunday. Uh, and there was a, a local band playing, you know, traditional holiday music. And then Santa came on a fire truck and kids were playing on the playground. I think there are more well-meaning people than not, who realize that, um, you know, protests, violent protests should be called violence, that broken windows, whether they're in Santa Monica or New York or Chicago or Minneapolis, are, you know, devilish works of, um, you know, of miserable people, as opposed to, you know, freedom fighters. Um, and, you know, I think you see the you do see a bit of a backlash in the other direction. Look, the, the new mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, uh, is a Democrat, as Bill de Blasio was, but Bill de Blasio devastated the city. Eric Adams is a former policeman uh, who has spoken about law and order. Eric Adams was involved in, in a cultural campaign that you could call conservative, where he, or, he and others organized billboards telling young men uh, in, in ghettos to pull up their pants and stop showing their underwear and dress as if they have a future for themselves. So, you know, I do think that there's still some semblance of sensibility. Um, at the same time, I worry about schools becoming um, 
well, schools existing for the purpose of undermining American history. I think in, in The Price of Prosperity, I, I suggest that stories in American history stories are important. Uh, and that if you look at, you know, all these holidays that get impugned, I mean, Columbus Day, uh, of course, you can have people say, well, Columbus bought, who knows, syphilis, gonorrhea, you know, and enslavement to people in the Caribbean. Uh, and you can have that discussion, but Columbus Day is a symbol of, of, of courage. Uh, and at the same time, by the way, there was slavery uh, amid uh, native peoples uh, in the Americas long before Columbus showed up and there were diseases as well. Thanksgiving, yes, okay, you can talk about uh, pilgrims and then you can talk about uh, how ultimately uh, Native Americans were damaged, but the same thing, it is a symbol of comity. There was a meal, there was sharing of knowledge, there was survival of winters. So unfortunately, in trying to undermine every story and every aspect of American history, we forget that the true lessons are that we are still here and we are still here because good people knew when it was time to fight and when it was time to compromise. We're a country that fought a civil war to free slavery and that war was won by those who wanted to liberate. And it wasn't won by the minority that wanted to keep uh, slavery in place. So, um, you know, I, I am still optimistic, uh, but I think we have a lot of work to do if we are going to see an optimistic future. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's always, always be mindful of the slippery slope as well. You know, we, you start off with Columbus Day and, and everyone's, oh, whatever, you know, I don't really have much of an opinion one way or the other in Columbus Day and the activists are, you know, able to spew disinformation and, and you know, essentially out of context propaganda is really what it is uh, about, you know, as if, as if Columbus is, is to be judged by today's moral standards, but the Native Americans aren't, right? And, right, we, we and then it goes on to Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? Just like we, we saw with, with the Confederate statues, a lot of people were like, okay, fine, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe we shouldn't have those. And then everyone was, some people were saying, well, you know, Jefferson's going to be next and Jefferson's next. And everyone's like, okay, well, Lincoln's going to be next. Now they're, you know, taking down, uh, you know, images of Lincoln places. It's like, well, they, they took down Diane Feinstein's name from a school. That one's San okay. I mean, you were okay with that. You know? um, <laughs> that yeah, it's, it's just crazy, you know, uh, in the price of prosperity, I make the point that nations are very fragile. You know, uh, Francis Scott Key, when he wrote The Star-Spangled Banner, the line was, oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave? And it was a question mark. It wasn't a declaration. It was like, is it still there? Right. Because when he wrote that poem that turned into the national anthem, he knew that countries could die. Uh, there was a nation of Genoa that lasted about 211 days uh, in 1814, the Republic of Belgium uh, lasted just a year in 1790. So nations can fall apart. You know, we, we tend to think that the nations that fall apart are poor. We talk about Sudan and Haiti, right. but wealthy nations fall apart. You know, mm -hmm. the Austro-Hungarian Empire was powerful. The Ottoman Empire was the most powerful nation uh, in the Middle East uh, and North Africa right. and parts of Asia, and they're gone. You know, I've never met an Ottoman. You know, I put my feet on an Ottoman in my living room, but I've never met an Ottoman. They're gone. Right. And they weren't gone uh, because there was a recession or even a pandemic. They were gone because they were destroyed from within and they didn't know they no longer cohered. And the division 
that is created by the woke and progressive community in trying to, I mean, it's, it's rather ironic because they'll talk about coming to a society and it only takes a village, but what they really do is atomize, break apart every community. Right. So that, you know, there's no commonality mm -hmm. uh, unless you also are five foot seven and Italian on your father's side and, and, and Nigerian on your mother's side. And unless you have the exact same, unless you're a twin and not a fraternal twin, but an identical twin, they don't have the ability to, to be a community. Everyone has to be separated uh, by, you know, little slices of DNA. Uh, and that is, you know, poisonous. Absolutely. Uh, and that's the poison that's coursing through the system at the moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, without without tradition, without respect for your foundation, without a, a respect for history. I mean, Jews know this well. This is why Jews have been able to survive. All these empires were significantly stronger is, you know, tradition plays a long, you know, big part of that, you know, uh, you know, respect for a, a certain uh, ethos and common heritage. Right. Um, and the United States, obviously, you know, we're, we're one of the few countries in the world that is so heterogeneous, right? Everyone comes from everywhere and different religions represented basically every nationality. It's like, if you don't have at least a, a, a coming together on a few foundational things and there's nothing here, like what do I have in common with, with, you know, someone like yourself or someone they like, you know, who, whose parents came on the slave ship or somebody whose parents came on the Mayflower. It's like, we all have different backgrounds and different, uh, you know, religions, ethnicities, all that. It's like, if you don't have come to terms on a few of the basic precepts of what this country is about, which is, actually pretty amazing, like objectively speaking, right? It was a radical uh, departure from all the world history in terms of incorporating of civil rights and human liberties and all that, uh, and led to revolutions and inspired revolutions all over the world to basically uh, take these democratic rights and install them in their places, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. You know, if you don't have, if you can't just come to terms on those basic things, what can you come to terms on? So how do you see the rest of let's let's give it like, let's give it like a few decades right you know let's let's look a little bit further out economically speaking how do you see the united states how do you see china how do you see sort of the rest of the world a lot of people used to say that you know china would surpass us uh, some people still say that um there's actually I've, I've heard some interesting perspectives that that's not necessarily inevitable people who said that were there were people who said there were morons yeah uh and, and included with some you know purportedly smart people in smart publications but people who said that China was going to surpass the U.S., you know, never went to third or fourth grade and learned what a denominator was because they were simply talking about the overall size of the GDP. Mm -hmm. Well, if you tell me, so China has already surpassed Switzerland, but the standard of living in Switzerland is four times what it is in China. Would you yeah. rather live in Geneva, you know, and drive a Maserati or would you rather, you know, try to hail down a tut-tut uh, in, um, in Beijing? I'd rather I'd stay in Geneva. So, of course, China's overall GDP may get somewhat larger than the U.S., although I'm not convinced it's going to happen. Right. But even if it does, yeah. their standard, their population is three times the size uh, and their standard of living will be one third at best. So, you know, you combined you combine that simple you know, arithmetic with the fact that the U.S. economy is still more dynamic and more resilient uh, than virtually any other economy. And we proved that uh, during COVID as people adapted. Um, and when you see, you know, did, did I guess China did come up with a vaccine and maybe it has some level of effectiveness, but boy, you know, I would rather bet on Pfizer and Moderna 
than I would bet on what's coming out of the factory in Wuhan. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so you, you, you see a optimistic vision for the United States for this century, 21st century. I see, I see an optimistic vision, but I see a, a, a version or future, but I, I do think that there are going to be bills to be paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think we're going to have to have a reckoning if we want to keep that dynamism. And when I want to feel that we are capable, two examples I'd point you to were Canada and Sweden. In the early 1990s, both of those countries were near broke. The Swedish National Bank had to raise overnight lending rates to 500% to stop a run on the currency. Canada had bonds were traded, uh, were falling quickly. And so the government had to really take an ax and cut public pension plans, cut the size of the government and employees of the government. And in both of those cases, it really righted their respective ships of state. The question isn't whether we're going to do that and whether we're going to right the ship of state. The question is, do we wait for a crisis? It would be a whole lot better and a whole lot cheaper to try to address some of these issues now, but ultimately they will be addressed. And hopefully it won't be because it's forced on us by a market that decides to discard the US in place of the Chinese RMB or the Japanese yen or the latest crypto phase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can't I can't see the uh, any other currency taking uh, you know, becoming problem, more prominent than the United States dollar, I think, if anything, then maybe maybe Bitcoin eats into some of it. But who knows what, what happens with that? So your biggest your cause for concern would be what with respect to the United States? Would it be the debt? Would it be the astronomical uh, debt to GDP ratio, which is what, like 130 percent or the labor participation rate or like automation? What would it be? You know, Ronald Reagan's last speech as president, he laid out what he felt that his biggest concern was, because in his view, America was back. America was mighty. The Soviet Union was teetering. Uh, Berlin was about to fall into freedom. Uh, the U.S. economy was very strong uh, and had been overhauled dramatically since the 70s. But his biggest concern was cultural. His biggest concern was that parents were not sitting down at the kitchen table with their kids and passing on the values, the shared values of the country. And I think that's our, that's our biggest risk. I mean, we might not have a civil war, but we might have a civil division and we may become, and not just a cliche, but legally a disunited States of America. I don't think that would be a good idea, um, but it, could happen. Uh, and so I think it's really the cultural concerns that are the biggest risk to the longevity of this country, as opposed to our debt to GDP ratio or the current inflation rate, although those are concerns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, actually. The uh, culture is culture is paramount. You know, if you have a country full of people who uh, don't particularly like it very much, you know, it's not going to be a, a very rosy future. Yeah, I mean, look, if, if you don't have shared values and shared principles and shared stories, what do you, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to kill each other, but I mean, look at it this way. You can go to LAX or JFK airport and you'll see people of all different walks of life and countries and religions and cultures passing one another. And they all basically manage to get on their planes and they fly away and it 
works generally without violence, but is it a country? Is it a community? If something goes wrong, are people going to come together and help each other? Are there joint missions other than trying to get through the jetway and, and throw my luggage in the overhead compartment before it's full? So I'm not saying that the alternative to the US is some you know dark ages of violence and beheadings. I'm saying it's a place that would no longer have the ability to come together, that would be less likely to raise the standard of living, and would just be a nation where people would get by on their own uh, and would never have the pride of passing on grand traditions. And I don't think that would be a very good future. Absolutely. Also a nation that wouldn't be able to defend itself against hypersonic missiles from China, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that counts too. <laughs> Tal Buckholz, thank you so much uh, for being on. It was a fascinating discussion. Uh, where can people find you? They can find me at EconTod on Twitter, or they can go to EconTod.com. Uh, and of course, they can go to their local bookstore or online Amazon or any other place and um, look for a variety of books uh, under Todd Buckholz, B-U-C-H-H-O-L-Z. Right. Good and to we'll be put, with you. Absolutely. And we'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye now. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Sox, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.